Good morning. My name is Jordan Bertrand. My husband, Matt, and I serve here at Redeemer Odessa, um, and we're part of the McLean Community Group. This morning, we're going to be reading from Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will remain forever. Hey, uh, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the, the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church Odessa. If you're new, thank you for being here. There's a connect card under your chair. If you'd take a minute, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to connect with you, to see how we can serve you, to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. If you need a Bible, want a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody in the back will bring you one. If you're on your phone, we use the ESV. And uh, okay. So if you were listening as Jordan read, uh, I hope your interest is at least piqued. Um, I've strategically set loose several rattlesnakes in this room this morning. And we're going to find out who the real ones in Christ are. Uh, I'm just kidding about that. But this is a really unique set of verses in the Bible. We're going to spend some time talking about them. This morning's going to feel at times a little more like a Bible study versus a sermon. And then at times it's going to feel like a normal Sunday morning service uh, sermon. We do here at Redeemer, we do what's called expository preaching. So what that means is we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And our goal as a church is to span the whole counsel of God's word. And we have been in Mark since basically the beginning of our time as a church. Like we're rounding out 18 months in the gospel of Mark. And this is the last sermon in our Mark series. We have arrived at the conclusion. And here's something noteworthy. Here's some of that Bible study type stuff for you. These final 11 verses were not in the original Greek manuscripts, meaning they were not in the original letter that Mark wrote to the church of Rome. And most scholars believe that Mark was not even involved in writing these final 11 verses um, as the author of the other 15 and a half chapters. And therefore, I'm going to say with some confidence, these 11 verses don't actually belong in, in, your, in the Bible. Uh, 
In fact, so prevalent is this view that several commentaries just leave out talking about these 11 verses. They just don't comment on them. They tell preachers not to preach on them, uh, don't teach through them. They don't view these 11 verses as divinely inspired words of God. And although, while I don't disagree, I don't believe that Mark was the author of these 11 verses based on textual evidences that we're going to talk about, Uh, I don't believe that these verses are divinely inspired words of God. And I don't believe that if you are pastoring a church someday and you're like, hey, I want to preach through Mark, but I want to leave these 11 verses out. Like, I don't think you're being unfaithful to the word of God by taking that approach. It does appear to us, even if you are just a casual reader of the Bible, a casual reader of the gospel of Mark, that verse 8 does end Mark's letter rather abruptly. So in verses 1 through 8 in in chapter 16, with Jesus having been resurrected, we see this angel sitting in the tomb where Jesus was, and he gives these two women these instructions to go back to the disciples and tell them what they have seen. And then the story ends with these women running away from the tomb in fear. The end. There's just a lot of debate why Mark would end his letter like that in verse 8. And it appears that his letter is unfinished, and many New Testament scholars think that this was an unintentional ending by Mark for one reason or another. However, it is the, uh, what the most reliable Greek manuscripts offer us. So now we have to wrestle with verses 9 through 20. Uh, and many just don't do it, and that's honestly fine. But for me and for you, I want to take a look at this passage together because I do think... And I know with some degree of confidence that many of you are spending time in the Word of God. And without giving you maybe perhaps some tools and some resources or some ways to approach textual variants and textual additions, without giving you these tools for properly interpreting the Bible, I'm not pastoring you very well in this regard. And so I just want to get a few things out in the open for us. This text presents us with some challenges. And because of everything I've just mentioned, it is advisable for pastors and preachers to not preach this text alone in isolation. We're not meant to view this text as an authority for us in terms of like orthodoxy or orthopraxy, meaning this text isn't going to shape what we believe or what we do as a church. Um, If you're one of these like theology nerds like me, this text is commonly referred to as the long ending, sometimes the long ending controversy. Uh, And basically, there's only one translation of the Bible that I'm aware of that recognizes this text as authoritative and without error, and that's the the King James Version, which is ironically used by some of the most conservative denominations we have, and yet they use one of the most liberal translations of the Bible there is in terms of accuracy. Anyways, I digress. All other translations of the Bible tend to just give us a footnote like, hey, be careful with these verses. They probably weren't in the original manuscripts. So that's what RESV does, or other translations just completely leave it out. Whatever, it's fine. Because we don't believe this set of verses to be inerrant or without error, and we don't believe them to be authoritative, this doesn't discount or discredit the rest of the Bible. And here's why I believe this to be true. While that footnote in your Bible may seem strange or may seem jarring, it's important to know that including a footnote here is not a recent development in like Christian history. Christians have known for centuries that these 11 verses probably were not in the original manuscript or the original letter of Mark's gospel. 
Church historians from way back, first century church historians all the way through the fourth century, would agree that these words were not in many of the available manuscripts and copies. But without these verses, we have an empty tomb, but we don't have, we don't have Jesus. Like we have an empty tomb, but no resurrection encounters of Jesus. So while I believe these ver- verses are not authoritative for us, they do indeed support the other gospel accounts of Jesus to a large degree. So here's what we're going to look at today. I know there's a lot of information. Maybe this is your first time in church. It's not always like this. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text here. Um, here's what we're going to look at today. In terms of Bible study, we're going to talk about who actually wrote these verses, and the textual reasons why church history points to somebody else writing writing these uh, words other than Mark. We're going to have a discussion about baptism, and then we're going to discuss the five signs or, or wonders or, or gifts mentioned here. And then out of that, we're going to lean really heavily into the application of the Great Commission and the doctrine of the Ascension that's mentioned here and affirmed by the other gospel writers. Because again, these verses are not meant to stand in isolation. They're not meant to stand alone. And so we're going to move forward with an understanding of what the Ascension means for us and how, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are meant to apply the Great Commission. So I want to pray, and then I just want to dive into this crazy text together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are no longer in that tomb. Lord, thank you that you have risen and ascended, and Lord, that you are coming back again. Lord, we need you in this moment. I pray that you would show us our need for you. Lord, that you would increase our dependency, that you would increase our faith. Lord, that you would strengthen the witness of believers in this room based on what you are doing in their lives, Lord, and based on your resurrection and your ascension. Lord, thank you for calling us out of sin and darkness and into life. And I pray that you would be diligent to do that even today, this morning. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would convict you where you need conviction and the Lord would encourage you where you need encouragement. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. It says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he, that be Jesus, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Okay, first and foremost, let's deal with authorship. First of all, the style of Mark up to this point has been one of giving us the necessary and pertinent details with a huge degree of intentionality. Not wasting any time or any words, he writes... And Mark is clear in his approach, telling us the story of Jesus. Now all of a sudden, the style abruptly shifts. These last 11 verses do not read like the rest of the letter of Mark. It goes from graphic and vivid storytelling to just kind of like, as a matter of fact, this is what happened, sort of narrative. And so there's some textual evidences to suggest that Mark didn't write these verses. And if you remember all the way back to our first Mark sermon 18 months ago, Mark provides us with the very first gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's believed that he used the Apostle Peter as his source, and as he is writing, his writings would become the sources for the other gospels. 
And so these verses seem to be summarizing the other Gospels that were written a decade or two following Mark's letter. So having said all of that, let's look at these four verses and their significance for us. First of all, the most important thing for you to walk away from this text is this. Jesus was no longer dead. Jesus is, in fact, alive. Jesus had been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, and death has been defeated on behalf of all sinful humanity. We now, through Jesus' death on the cross, completed by the resurrection, can now have access to God by grace through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are no longer slaves to sin and death, but children of the Most High God. And somebody shout amen. Thank you. Uh, We see this as is consistent with the other Gospels, that Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene. She was rewarded for her faithfulness to Jesus. All of his disciples had left. She stayed with him all the way to the foot of the cross. And Jesus not only appeared to her as the first witness of the resurrection, but she became the first herald of, the first missionary of, the first messenger of the Gospel completed through the resurrection of Jesus. She is the first person to proclaim the necessity of belief by faith in the resurrection for the saving grace that comes to us by faith in Christ. And she goes to the disciples and she says, I've seen Jesus. And they don't believe her. The words of of the long ending, as we'll call it from here on out, are affirmed in Luke's gospel. After appearing to Mary Magdalene, Jesus then appears to two travelers on their walk to Emmaus. We see that in Luke 24. And these two went and found the other disciples. And they're like, hey guys, we have seen Jesus. And they didn't believe him. We're told that they're filled with sorrow. They're filled with mourning and they're weeping. The disciples refuse to believe the witnesses, Mary Magdalene and the other two disciples. Dr. Cole says this, In spite of their sorrow, there is nothing more tragic than the refusal of the disciples to receive such witness, even when it was the answer to their problems. The unbelief of the disciples has been a constant theme of Mark's gospel. They're still the same. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, showing that the picture given is true, they go back to default. They go back to their factory settings. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, these disciples are constantly drifting into unbelief. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now we have Jesus himself appearing to the disciples. I wonder what was that, that was like for them. You know, like they don't believe Mary. They don't believe the Emmaus Road disciples. Jesus shows up and it might have been like, a, whoa. <laughs> uh, the long ending presents three testimonies in order of authority. One woman, they don't believe him believe her. Two men, they don't believe them. And then the resurrected Jesus shows up. Jesus, the text says, rebuked them for their unbelief of the earlier witnesses, and then he confirms their testimony by his appearance before them. We can be assured then, based on this text and the other three Gospels, that the testimony of the church throughout the centuries of the risen King and Savior Jesus Christ is the testimony of Jesus himself. 
Verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is basically the same commission given to the same disciples in Matthew's account. Matthew 28, 19-20 says, Jesus telling the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, the disciples are given a charge to go and preach the gospel to all the nations, into all the world, it says in verse 15. Do you see this? Like up until this point, up until the resurrection of Jesus, his ministry was entirely limited almost exclusively to the Jews, almost exclusively to the nation of Israel. And now the disciples are being commissioned to go into the whole world. We see in Acts 1.8, the great commission from Luke's account, that Jesus has promised to be with him through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit to the very ends of the earth. The dividing wall of hostilities between man and sin and death have been torn down and defeated. And now because of the resurrection, God will redeem for himself a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue on the face of the earth. And we are living in light of their faithful obedience to this commission. Until the resurrection of Jesus had taken root in the form of belief in their hearts, though, until they were truly convinced that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, they had no gospel to proclaim. They had no reason to go and do anything. And here is Jesus, commissioning them now, after his resurrection, as belief has finally taken root in the heart of the disciples, He's commissioning them by means of faith in Christ to go. And to go to all peoples, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless, regardless of ethnicity. There is now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Because by means of the resurrection of Jesus, we can now all draw near to the throne of grace through the faith given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to call us to faith, to convict us of sin, and to call us to belief in Jesus. Man, think about your own life for a second. The same commission stands two millennia removed from this event. If you are a Christian, if you would claim to be a Christian, you are a disciple of Christ. And as a disciple of Christ, then, you are now commissioned to go and make disciples. Faith in Jesus will lead you to proclamation of Jesus. So are you in word and deed proclaiming that you actually belong to Jesus? The story continues. Verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. All right, I want to go all the way back to the introduction for just a brief second. I told you that these verses are not meant to stand on their own. Uh, they're not meant to inform our doctrine or what we believe or how we do church. So having said that, it would not be advantageous of me to kick around brothers and sisters from other Christian denominations in this process. But I do want to affirm that these verses, specifically this verse and the ones that follow, have given rise to a lot of misunderstanding and division throughout Christian churches for several centuries. I had a friend in college 
who was uh, from the denomination Church of Christ. Uh, this friend was my brother's roommate for several years, and, and we had some good theological conversations that were good at shaping me and sharpening me, but we would always disagree on baptism because my Church of Christ brothers and sisters believe that baptism is what saves you. It's a salvation issue for them. And they use this verse, verse 16, in isolation to stake their claim on that doctrine. Now we, uh, not being Church of Christ, we believe that baptism is important. We believe that Jesus commands baptism. We believe that it is a sacrament or an ordinance for the church. So what we believe that Scripture teaches, in contrast to my Church of Christ friends, is this. The emphasis is not on baptism as salvific, meaning baptism, salvation by baptism, but on the exercise of faith. We see this in Matthew's commissioning and in Jesus' baptism passages, that faith in Christ precedes baptism. The person who has received salvation, the person who has surrendered himself or herself to Christ, will gratefully accept baptism as a sign that he or she has been sealed by Christ. Baptism follows faith. It is not faith plus baptism that saves a person, but grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone that saves a person. And by that saving faith, baptism then is a sign of submission to Jesus for all of life. Just so to sum it up, man, apart from a saving work of Jesus in your heart, you are condemned. You are guilty. You are hopeless. You are destined to an eternity separated from Christ. Apart from the faith in Christ's substitutionary death on your behalf, where Jesus dies in your place, taking on the punishment that was deserved for you and I because of our sin, Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life and dies the death that was deserved for you in order to pay the payment that was ours to pay. And because of this, there is now forgiveness. And this forgiveness has been freely offered to you by God through belief in the Son by the Holy Spirit. Yet without this forgiveness, Scripture teaches us that we are condemned to death, separated from Christ. Were it not for God's work on the cross to save sinners, we would be cast off. Thanks be to God for his grace and mercy to save repentant sinners. All right, so now let's get into the, kind of the weird stuff. Uh, look at these gifts and signs. Verse 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poisons it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. All right, again, disclaimer. I wanted to see who the, the real ones were in here, the real followers of Christ were. So in the back, there's communion. We've replaced the juice with poison. Good luck. Enjoy. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Um, okay, two or three of these gifts don't really trouble us too much, especially if you come from like a more charismatic or continuationist point of view. Jesus in his ministry clearly cast out demons. Jesus in his ministry clearly healed sick people. Jesus gave his disciples the authority over the demonic and over sickness. 
We see the same thing is true about the gift of tongues, like Acts 2 at Pentecost, or in 1 Corinthians 14 when Paul talks about spiritual gifts. So now with these three things here, I want to tread very carefully because I know in our little church we are all over the map on what we think about this, what we believe about the miraculous gifts and how they're viewed or even how they're expressed. Some people will argue, including people that I respect and who are much smarter than me, they would argue that these gifts were signs for the apostles in the first century. They would say that these gifts would cease the, the second the canon was completed, like the second the Bible was put together. So church fathers like Augustine, for example, hold this view. Some of my 19th century heroes like Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield hold this view. Uh, a lot of the Puritans hold this view. The term is cessationist. It means those that believe the gifts have ceased. Then you have the other side of the aisle, men like Piper and Matt Chandler, if you're familiar, some of you may be familiar with those men, they would fall into the other side, which is the continuationist view that means that the gifts have continued and are useful for us even today. So just all cards on the table, that's the view I hold, the continuationist view, with, the, with this caveat. <laughs> the gifts are not to be pursued above the giver of gifts. And oftentimes, man, that's an unfortunate result of this text. Many times, the gifts have been abused, and people have been abused by churches or people who prioritize the gifts above faithful following or dependency on Jesus. And a lot of times, people leave the faith over these abuses that they've experienced in churches. And that's not limited to charismatic abuses. So I just want to say this, like I'm open to movements of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm not like some of our hyper-Pentecostal hyper brothers and sisters who would tell you that if you, uh, if you don't speak in tongues, you aren't saved. I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. So I just want to caution all of us. Some of you may disagree with me on this point for one reason or another. But first and foremost... Before we pursue like the gift of tongues or any other spiritual gift for that matter, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then through his Holy Spirit, he gives gifts to edify the church as he sees fit. So if you're pursuing some like charismatic, miraculous gift, just want to encourage you to pursue Jesus too and first and foremost. I'll come back and put a bow on this line of thinking in a second. So if you're mad at me now or disagree with me now, don't check out just yet. It may get worse. Um, I hope it gets better, so stand by. Uh, snakes and poisons. Here we go. Um, as your pastor, I don't endorse this. I won't endorse this. Uh, I read a book last year about this group of people. It was called Salvation on Sand Mountain. If you like to read books, get this one. Uh, Salvation on Sand Mountain. It was a book about these holiness Pentecostal people. They're the snake-handling, poison-drinking group. Uh, one of the pastors, I don't know why I'm smiling. This is really bad. Why, let me wipe it off. Okay, one of the pastors of these churches forced his wife at gunpoint to stick her hand in the snake cage to try to murder her. Uh, it was wild. Uh, she survived, <laughs> and he's in prison. Spoiler alert. Uh, you may call the true crime genre like a guilty pleasure. I just call it a pleasure. 
anyways, salvation on Sand Mountain, there's an endorsement. But snakes and poisons. Those who hold these two verses to be divinely inspired words from God use Jesus' words in Luke 10, 19 out of context. It says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then we have this encounter in Acts 28 where Paul, with Paul in uh, 28, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in a fire... A viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And Paul would shake this viper off and didn't even get swollen or anything. He, he, he lived. He didn't suffer anything. Neither of these verses, however, say, Hey, man, go deliberately pick up a snake. And there's no other place in the Bible that's like, Yeah, college, mix up a poison cocktail. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So if you want to be a snake-handling poison drinker, first of all, I'd say don't. Secondly, I'd say if you're going to do that, there are probably some natural consequences. So again, don't. Don't be dumb. Um, If you're a holiness Pentecostal person, listening to this. I'm sorry, I just said dumb. Uh, In regards to the gifts and the signs mentioned, all five of them, the long ending of Mark is binding for us for faith and practice only to the extent in which its teachings are supported by the rest of Scripture. Therefore, I believe that we must reject the deliberate handling of snakes and poison drinking as a sign of faith and salvation. Deal? Don't do that. Um, Therefore, also, I believe exorcisms of demons and healings in tongues are biblical in instances where the Lord wills for the person to be healed in order to bring about that person's good and God's most glory. I believe that tongues are biblical in what we see in the Acts 2 missional ethic, in the missional power sort of way. If you look at that text in Acts 2, all these disciples are like unlearned fishermen. And all of a sudden they're like master linguists speaking all these foreign languages with no formal education in them. I met one of you dudes from Brazil out there. I was able to say hot dog and umbrella. That's all I got in Portuguese. Uh, But these disciples would just like be able to rattle off the gospel in whatever language by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit can can act and give us tongues and prophetic utterances, but not for our glory. Not for our glory, but for the edification of the church and for his glory. I believe that healings do in fact take place, but sometimes we pray for Christians to be healed and they aren't. And I believe that based on what Scripture teaches us is that God does what brings him the most glory, what brings him the most honor, what brings God the most praise. Sometimes our sicknesses and our physical infirmities are in place to draw us closer to God, which I would argue is the most important thing. It's more important than our physical healing that we are found in Christ. That we're content in Christ. That we're dependent on Christ. And so these latter three spiritual gifts are given to God to edify the church. Given to us by God to edify the church. 
And as a church, if you're a covenant member of Redeemer Odessa, we are going to hold these gifts with open hands. We're going to allow these gifts to be secondary issues for our church and not our primary pursuit. I refuse to debate these things. I refuse to polarize these things. We can land in different places on these things and how we interpret the scriptures around charismatic and miraculous gifts and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, united in our confession of the Lord Jesus as Savior. So if you're sick, man, I want to pray for you. If you're hurting, I want to pray for you. I'm going to lay my hands on you and pray and ask God with eager expectation to heal you. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to praise him. Because we believe that God is working for your good and for his glory, regardless of your circumstances, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up in heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So now we've come to the ascension, and oftentimes this is unfortunately neglected in our modern churches, but the long ending summarizes it beautifully. Jesus ascended. I don't really know what this looked like. I think about, like, maybe you're a little kid, and if you ever had a balloon and, like, accidentally let it go, and the balloon was a goner. I think of it, maybe it looked like that. Or like if you've seen that movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and they pop bottles in that, in that room, that fizzy lifting drink thing, and they drink the, and they float away. Uh, I don't know what it looked like, but I know there's no helium or funny soda present. Jesus just rose up in the air by the power of God. So first we see Jesus' lordship in view. Without the resurrection, Jesus cannot be Lord. And without the ascension, Jesus cannot be interceding for us. And if Jesus is not our Lord, if Jesus is not our great high priest, we are still in need of a Savior. We are still vessels of wrath. Jesus completed the mission that he set out to accomplish. He has defeated sin and death by his resurrection. And through the ascension, the Father is receiving the Son, raising the Son to himself. Thus, Jesus is receiving his reward for having accomplished his work as our great high priest and mediator of the ultimate sacrifice of himself. The eleven would go out from there preaching everywhere as the Lord Jesus had commanded them. In obedience to Christ's commands, his disciples began the work of mission and evangelism and discipleship. And the church would grow and is growing even today. And the Lord is still commissioning disciples in him to go and do likewise as we eagerly await for the return of Christ. The long ending affirms the doctrine of the ascension as seen in the earlier gospels, or the other gospels. And because of the ascension, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And from this position, he is tenderly watching over us, guiding us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. He's living inside of true believers in Jesus, and he's energizing the church for mission and governing his church for holiness to the praise of his excellent grace. So with all that in view, I know that was a lot. With all that in view, we're called to respond. If you look under your chairs, I've placed three random tokens throughout the worship space here. If you have one of those tokens, come on up. we got snakes in the back. Uh, all that, again, joke. Uh, I, don't, I don't do snakes just as, as a rule. 
If you have a snake, there's a girl that's been walking around my neighborhood with like a snake hanging around her neck. And like when she, when I see her, I go to the back of the house. Uh, I, I don't do snakes. Um, that's true. It's some weird like albino python thing. I, I, I don't like it. Um, just the fact that that's like on my street gives me nightmares. So um, that's going on in my life. Pray for me. Um, okay, on a serious note, let's get back to this. While we're going to try to hold this text in its proper place as a non-authoritative appendix, there are a couple things to consider. First and foremost, I'll start with this. In regards to the spiritual gifts discussion a few minutes ago, there's this idea sometimes, not with every Christian I've encountered, but certainly with some, that the more miraculous spiritual gifts are for the better or more qualified Christians the more faithful believers get the better gifts. And man, I just don't agree with that line of thinking. There are those that would say, if you're not experiencing healing, for example, then you don't have enough faith to be healed. And that's not biblical either. So I want to say this. The greatest miracle in all of Scripture is Christ's resurrection. And the second greatest miracle in all of Scripture is that Christ has made a way for sinners to be reconciled back to himself. Your salvation is a miracle in and of itself, especially when you consider what you have been saved from. So again, I just want to call you to rest in that. I want to call you to function as a believer out of your sonship, out of your adoption as a son or a daughter of God. And God will equip you with whatever you need for faithful service unto him in his time. So we don't need to wonder, like, ultimately, like, oh, what's my, what's my spiritual gift or take a test or whatever. Uh, because now Christ lives inside of you if you are a believer, and that's all we need to know him and to follow him and be dependent on him. So with that, we see this. Jesus has commissioned his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Man, some of you may end up overseas as missionaries, and that would be awesome. And some of you will be faithful followers of Jesus in Odessa or Andrews or somewhere in Texas for the rest of your lives. And that'd be awesome, too. God is pleased to use faithful followers of Jesus in whatever place we find ourselves in. We're here in Odessa, like it or not, you are here in Odessa for such a time as this. You, as a follower of Christ, have been given a commission. The same commission given to the first 11 disciples in the first century to go and make disciples. The question I'll submit to you today is this especially if you would proclaim to be a Christian? Man, do you take that particular calling on your life seriously? Do you take the calling of your life to make disciples seriously? Man, it is good and praiseworthy to be a sinner saved by grace. Yes and amen. But out of a response to that salvation... You are called to holiness, and you are called to obedience. You are called to be a missionary, even now. You don't have to go overseas to fulfill the Great Commission. Some of you are called to your dinner table. 
All of you right now, if you're a Christian, all of you right now are called to your kids, are called to your neighbors, are called to your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, the people nearby that do not know Christ. You are called to them. Are you meaningfully engaging them with gospel intentionality? Man, that's the point of these verses. In conjunction with the whole of Scripture in general, but specifically the New Testament, it's not tongues or snakes or poisons, but gospel proclamation to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Man, keep this in mind. The signs that these verses speak of don't constitute the message of salvation. Don't get that confused. Signs and wonders are not the message. But rather, spiritual gifts, all of the spiritual gifts, not just the miraculous ones, confirm the message that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place, and is ruling and reigning and will return someday to usher in a new heaven and a new earth to rule and reign for all eternity. And disciples of Jesus will then delight in his presence forever and ever. Amen and amen. To that end, the church Christians must pursue kingdom advancement by means of mission and evangelism and service. The church has been given a calling to go forward with the Lord Jesus Christ to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, if you've been deficient in this area, then praise God he's revealing that to you in this moment. But this is not an invitation for you to sit in here and remain unchanged. If you are a Christian, I'd ask you to prayerfully consider your life, your lifestyle, your words and deeds, and what they communicate about your relationship to Jesus. Are you honoring Christ? Is your life reflective of the Great Commission, the missional calling you have received from the Lord? If not, Grace to you. But if not, what needs to change? What do you need to repent of? The Lord is calling you to faith and dependency in him. This salvation that has been secured is not the end, but rather it is the beginning of a life marked by faithfulness and dependency on Jesus, following him in obedience to all that he has commanded you to. Man, if you don't know where to start, get plugged in. Serve somewhere. In this church, we have ample opportunities for you to serve the Lord in various ways. College ministry, international student ministry, neighborhood outreach that we started this summer, kids ministry. Man, if you're musical, come and serve in the band. If you aren't musical, you can make a joyful noise with Chad in the back in the tech area. Man, the goal of Christianity is not for you to come and consume and sit in the fun dome And go on your way after we're done here. It's not to attend church a few times a year and check off your God box. But to actively engage in the mission of God. If you need a place to serve, come talk to us. We have opportunities in excess. God wants all of you. Not just your leftovers. Not just your free time. Not your When your convenient moments, Jesus. Man, get involved, invest deeply in community and mission to the praise of God and for your good. 
Again, if you've been deficient here, especially if you're a member of this church, there is grace for your failures and grace for our shortcomings, but we must not use that grace as an excuse to neglect obedience to Jesus. Meaning, I can't go on sinning and say, ah, God's got me. No, that time is up. The same is true for those of you that aren't, aren't believers in here. There's grace for your failures. Salvation has been purchased for you at great cost through the Son's death on the cross. Christ is calling you to Him and His mission. He is calling you into life and life everlasting in and through Him. There's nothing you can do to earn this salvation. All you have to do is admit your great need for Jesus and ask Him to save you. Repent and believe this morning. Let's pray.